Well, as we start, I want to ask you a question this morning. How do you, in this time of this COVID thing, or where we're at in it, continue to balance work responsibilities, uh, your family events, gatherings with friends, church events, and uh, then you've got doctor's appointments, and you've got sports, and you've got hobbies. How do you keep it all straight? Stabilize them. What was that? Very carefully. Okay, I like that. But wouldn't you agree that it's really a juggling act uh, because we struggle to try and keep the real important things first and give them priority while everything else, as much as possible, we try and keep it off our calendars, don't we? And this means that we must be able to determine which of the things that come across our path are priority items, are first kinds of items, and win charge. I need to tell Connor afterwards that the stuff that I bought that's supposed to keep your mouth from going dry is useless. <laughs> but but I, if I was to look at your calendar and you were to look at my calendar, would right, right now, would we actually see what believers have been given from Jesus as an example of the things that we, made, we need to make sure that we include as priorities in our lives? And this is where Luke's gospel comes in because for our text today, we're going to focus on the beginning of Jesus' ministry where he starts to minister in these important first steps in and around the communities that are around Galilee there. Uh, and uh, as the crowds then catch on and they start to come around, he's got to do some shifting. He's got to keep things in perspective. He's got to prioritize. And this is where we're going to begin this morning. So please, if you will, open your Bibles or your electronic devices, or whatever you have, your pew Bibles there, to Luke 4.38, and we're going to read up through 5.11 and find out what is important to Jesus. So when you've uh, found your place there in uh, chapter 4, verse 38, um, out of respect for the Lord and his word, please stand up as we read our text for this morning. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ." And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on excuse me, in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out 
into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon, Simon, excuse me, and Simon answered, saying, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, and so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Amen and amen. You may be seated. So let me ask you, as we start, have you ever been or gotten into situation or situations where you're so busy working on this project that the thing that you started out on and the men didn't even gotten to by the time you quit at night? Yeah? <laughs> sure. Um, in other words, when all is said and done, you felt the things the Lord wanted you to complete were suddenly interrupted by other things that have suddenly crossed your path. But let's face it, prior to COVID clo closing things down, anyone would tell you that Americans are busy people, right? You've heard that. In fact, you all know the statistics. Statistics like the one that says that uh, compared to European workers, uh, the Americans put in 350 hours more a year, which is nine weeks of labor more than Europeans. Another survey found that 28% of infrequent voters and 23% of those who haven't registered at all would say they don't register or they don't vote because they don't have any time. They're too busy. And according to a study overworked in America, 36% of the 1,000 salaried persons surveyed, uh, it came back that 36% um, of them, yeah, did not plan on taking vacation. And I know how that was. There's years I didn't take vacation. The world's a very busy it was very busy pre-COVID, and my sense is that today, as the COVID numbers start to go downward, we're, natural going, we're naturally going to be busy again, if nothing more than to at least clear out those container cargo ships that are sitting out there parked in front of Long Beach and Los Angeles harbors. You know, we're going to get busy again, 24 hours a day, so they say. According to author Eric Hoffer, the feeling of being hurried is not usually the result of living a full life and having no time. It is, on the contrary, born of a vague fear that we are wasting our life. When we do not do the one thing we ought to do, we have no time for anything else. We are the busiest people in the world. He's saying we're the busiest people in the world because we don't do what we ought to do. We're doing. But are we doing what we ought to do? And data collected from over 20,000 Christians representing Christians from 15 to 88 years old in 139 countries, 6 in 10 say it is often or always true that the busyness of life gets 
in the way of developing my relationship with God. Dr. Michael Zagari, who conducted the study, said the accelerated pace and activity level of the modern day distracts us from God and separates us from the abundant, joyful, victorious life he has for us. When I was a pastor up in the Bay Area, uh, we used to attend the, uh, the EFCA Ministerial Association meetings. That's where all the pastors get together. You've heard Craig talk about the time he gathers with the pastors down here. Same, same. And one of the pastors was speaking that particular week, and he was speaking on how hard it is for pastors to prioritize activities. And if you're a solo pastor that lives on the property where people come and ring the doorbell or knock on the door and uh, come right in, and Brenda's, on the, Brenda's in the kitchen there, <laughs> on the phone with somebody and she says oh excuse me I need to leave someone just came into my house you, you get all kinds of things going on anyway in his t talk uh, the pastor mentioned a popular quote which was the greatest enemy of the best is the good the greatest enemy of the best is the good, and guess what? Later on, you're going to hear Jesus say that same thing. This means that we often do a lot of good things while the best things remain undone, and that mean, makes Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, very important because he says that to be effective... We need to keep first things first. And that's when he wrote the book back in the 80s. And of course, that, that phrase has kind of evolved. And now it's we keep first things first and second things never. Right? Because if you don't, you're going to be doing second things. As I mentioned earlier today in scriptures, we're going to see several firsts which guided the early days of Jesus' ministry. We're going to begin by looking at Jesus himself and then Jesus reacting to the multitudes, and then after that we're going to see where he ministers to a separate group of special people, which are the disciples that are around him. And from this, we're going to pull out just two, just two main thoughts so that we can focus our attention on this and we might just learn how to keep first things first from those two. So that's where we're going today, and that's what we're going to do. We heard from our scripture reading today that after Jesus went to the synagogue in Capernaum, he went down to the home of Simon, which is what Jesus called Peter until chapter 5, verse 8. Then he calls him Simon, which is his birth name, really. Simon Peter, the rock in uh, Greek. And from there, after that, he calls him just Peter, the rock. And we're going to look at this further when we get there. But Jesus comes to Peter's home after the Sabbath celebration, and he sees what? His mother-in-law is ill. Now, there's no, there's no um, urge of care around. If you've been to, uh, if you travel to Capernaum, it's, it's one of the places where they have a, a, they've excavated that New Testament uh, synagogue, and it's, it's, and it's got the, the foundation and the walls and everything, and then just right down the street is where Peter's house is, and they're still doing some excavation there, but they know that that's Peter's house. Somehow there's some writing there that is telling them that. So Jesus rebukes the fever of Peter's mother-in-law, and it leaves immediately. Now, this is the first time we see Jesus rebuking 
and illness, much like he did in chapter 4, verse 35, where he rebuked a demon out of a man who brought his son to uh, uh, see Jesus because he had a demon. So now his rebuking keyword is has turned to one who is ill. He rebuked a demon before. He's now rebuking an illness. And then because Capernaum is a, a small town, and you all know what happens in small towns, right? How many of you lived in a small town before? Sure. When Brenda and I got moved into up at Lake Almond, our little town called Chester, 1,750 people, I think, and uh, she thought the, the, dishwa- uh, the clothes washer was turned on, and it wasn't, and she turned it on, and the water's flying all over the place, and she doesn't know what to do. So she calls 911, and down the street, guess what? Uh, a fire engine with a dog in the back sitting up there. And they pull up, you know, and they go in. They get everything turned off. They suck the water out and all this other stuff. And we, get, and we go to choir practice because I was a choir director back then. And, and uh, it's one of the things I did. And, and, and everybody, everybody starts talking about how we did with the water leakage in our house. How do you know about that? small town. That's what you get. Small town. Right? So, um, everybody hears about Peter's mother-in-law. Everybody knows Peter's mother-in-law. Everybody hears about her being ill. and Everybody hears about her being healed. So, they bring all of their uh, healed, people that need healing and people that need Demons cast out to Jesus, and Jesus heals them all. The word all is there. So this is the first time we see Jesus ministering to such a large group of people who needed healing, and he laid hands on them all, and, he, and the infirmities left them, and the demons uh, uh, were cast out of them. And what's interesting about this is when the demons left him, that then they acknowledged loudly that Jesus was the Son of God, and Jesus didn't want that to take place, so he didn't allow them to speak. A couple things we need to notice here. This is the first time we hear or learn about Jesus laying hands on people to make them well or better. Even though laying hands is in the Old Testament and it's in the New Testament. This is the first time we see Jesus doing it as his preferred way of healing. Oh, he heals by spitting in the mud and and putting it in the eyes and other things, but this is his preferred method. And the idea is in terms of... uh, laying hands is the idea of conveying or transference. It is transferring the power of God from a believer to to one who is in need of the power of God. That's that's what it is. That's why we lay hands on people. That's why you've seen Craig uh, up here, and we've had someone over here. I think uh, we've had the... the, um, Dakota and uh, Blake and, and Dakota, right? And we've had them up here before we sent them off to the Philippines. And all the elders are lined up here and they're praying. And he says, hey, rather than all y'all, why, rather than y'all come up here, we're gonna, just push, put your hands out. Put your hands out like that. Extend that transference of the Holy Spirit upon these people for the work that they're now being called out to do. So we see that. But I think the, fun, uh, the interesting one is where Aaron is called to lay hands on a goat. Now you think, what on earth is happening? But as soon as I tell you, you're going to say, I know what's happening. Leviticus 16.21 says that when Aaron had finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar... He shall bring forward the live goat. 
he is to lay both hands on the head of the goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The sins of the people on the Day of Atonement were placed on the head of the goat, and the goat left. And that wouldn't happen until the next year when they have the, on the Day of Atonement. In the New Testament, we see where the deacons were established by the laying on of hands. We see where Timothy was uh, 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 confirmed as a pastor by the laying on of hands, and ser several are there in the Old Testament. It's this sending someone off to accomplish something special for the Lord. Secondly, when Jesus cast out the demons we spoke about a moment ago, we need to take note that uh, he did not want the demons to tell the people who he was, so he ordered them to be quiet. Now, why are the demons mentioning to the people who Jesus is, and why does Jesus not want them to, those demons to do that at that time? Well, I came up with three reasons. One is to, the first thing is he commanded them to be silent because he had authority over them. It was Jesus that had the authority, not the demon. If you had a son that was uh, possessed by a demon who's thrown himself in the fire and all that, you would think that that demon had control over that boy, but Jesus has the authority. All authority under heaven and earth has been given to him, right? All authority over heaven and earth. Somebody tell me a place on heaven and earth where Jesus' authority doesn't extend. No place. You can't find one. You can't wait. Secondly, Jesus' listeners needed to believe that he was the Messiah because of his words, not the demons' words. Demons are under the control of, starts with an S, Satan, and Satan is a L word, liar. He's a D word, deceiver. That's right. He is a liar and he's a deceiver. And so he doesn't want to be connected to that. It is his own words, not because of the demon's words. Thirdly, Jesus was going to reveal his identity according to God's timetable and that he, Jesus, wouldn't be pushed by Satan's plans. It's, it's going to be God's timetable that this takes place, that Jesus will let the people know who he is, not Satan's timetable. Another first time event we see with Jesus begins in ministry when he needed time to be uh, where he begins his ministry, he needed time to be with God. So at daybreak, he went out to be alone to a solitary place. But the crowds around him required more from him, so they went out and found him, and um, he had to tell them that he must preach the good news to in other towns, and that was why he was being sent to them. And we see this in Mark and Matthew and Luke. Here's a Matthew ver verse that says, and often he had dismissed the crowds. He went up on the mountain himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. He was there alone because he did what? He dismissed the crowds. He knew the priority he had to have, he dismissed the crowds and went to be alone with God. We see another first thing about Jesus when he called his disciples to ministry. Jesus is down to the Sea of Galilee. He wants to speak to the people. 
And and y'all know that the, the you know the the lake is down at the bottom, and then the, everything else kind of coasts down. So the the people are behind each other, and they're they're in front of each other, and all that. And he needs to be out further, so he decides to go out in a boat. And so he gets into this boat, and um, uh, Peter, who owns the boat, is over there washing his nets, and he sees Jesus there in the boat, and uh, he goes over. And he tells Peter to go out a bit further, and he let down his net for a catch. And Peter complained by saying he worked hard all night and he hadn't caught anything. Now, that's not unusual for this, the Sea of Galilee. It's seven miles wide and 13 miles long. It's 140 feet deep in the middle, and there's towns all around it. And they eat enough fish to kind of keep the, the population of the fish really kind of low. They don't eat a lot of fish. Although, something that's really confusing or perplexing to me is that thousands and thousands of tourists every year go to Galilee and they go out on the boat and they come back and they're taken to this place over here and this place here will feed you the fish St. Peter's fish, it's called. They'll feed you the fish that supposedly Jesus is talking about right here, out of the lake. So you know that they're not going to have that many fish for that many tourists in one year, so they must go get them from someplace else. But for, for uh, <laughs> the Sea of Galilee, it doesn't put out that many fish. Peter says something astounding here, after his complaint about been fishing all night, he says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. At your word? What are you talking about, Peter? You just met Jesus the other day. How, how, how many words have you heard? He hardly knows Jesus. He's already putting trust in him and his word. No doubt he's aware. He saw his mother being healed. He saw all these throngs of people being healed. He saw all this fish that was, that was uh, brought in. So he's, he's thinking that um, something is going on with Jesus, something unusual about Jesus. So Peter's faith is starting to bud here. It's starting to come forth a little bit. He's putting all this together. And of course, then they, uh, and when Peter sees all of the fish that, that when they put their nets out the second time at Jesus' word, uh, they just filled, filled up the nets. And so he says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Sinful man? Who said anything about sin? Jesus, uh, Peter's, what's he? Jesus is talking about fish. Go out a ways, put your net down on the other side, and, and fish. Well, here we see this transformation of Peter. First of all, we see him with a little faith, enough to be respectful, obedient, and... Uh, one who would require respect. He speaks to Jesus as master. We toiled all night. Master. Now, unless you're a slave, we really don't use that word master, do we? Very much anymore, as it's translated. We don't use that. Master. Master is someone who you would think of in high regard and high esteem, yeah? Master. Someone who, who you would be willing to submit yourself to for whatever reason. Whoops, let me kick it in there. And Peter knew he didn't, uh, didn't have faith so he asks Jesus to, to depart from him as a sinful person. 
He knew he didn't deserve a catch like that for sure, but that nonetheless, since the Lord asked him to go further out, that's what he did, his heart was first opened a small amount, and then when he saw all the fish, it was opened a larger amount. In the book of Mark, there's a scripture where a man pleads with Jesus because his uh, son had a demon-possessed boy. And he says, um, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus responded, if you can, reported, retorted Jesus, everything is possible for one who has faith. The one, the father of the boy, at once the father of the boy cried, I have faith, help my lack of faith. Other translations write this, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Right? That's where Peter was at. That's the zone he was was at. He had little faith, faith enough to move forward, to be obedient to Jesus and his word, but yet not quite understanding the whole scene of what's going on here. Secondly, Peter pulls in enough fish to sink the boat, and it suddenly dawns on him that there's a connection between Jesus' words and the amount of fish in the nets. So that's when he fell down and he said, depart from me, O Lord. And now he's calling Jesus Lord, O Lord, Kyrie. He goes from master, the authority figure, to Lord, the, the person who should be obeyed and worship. So how can a rough and tumble guy like Peter, and we know who he's like, how many times has he said the wrong thing? You know, when you've, you've read about Peter's, Peter's life. How can a rough and tumble like him come into the presence of our Lord unless there was repentance first? So Peter confessed that he was a sinner. First things first. Peter confesses he's a sinner. And then things start to happen for Peter. If you look at the text in verse 8, verse chapter 5, it's at this point that Jesus adds Peter or Petros to his given name, his born name, Simon Rock. Simon Rock. And then later on it'll just be Peter Rock. Bottom line is that at this point Jesus knew that while it will be Peter who leads his disciples and on whom Jesus will build his church. Peter's going to be the guy. Thirdly, we see in verses 9 to 11 where all of Peter's command, uh, companions are astonished at this catch of fish and they Jesus tasked, so much so that Jesus had to tell them not to be afraid of what was going on. Apparently, fear had surfaced on the part of the disciples, so Jesus took a second to calm them down before he drops his bombshell, and his bombshell is this. From now on, Jesus said, you'll be catching men. What? Peter, James, and John catch people? That's <laughs> a laugh. They can't even catch fish without Jesus' help. And they were professional fishermen. But look at their responsibility to Jesus' words in verse 11. And when they had brought the boat to land, they left everything and followed him. The response is, they left everything. Can you believe that? They left Everything. Wait a minute. I thought you said Peter had a mother-in-law. If Peter had a mother-in-law, he had to have a wife. He had to have kids. 
He left everything. We'll talk about that in a minute. So in this initial cut of our reading this morning, we can see several firsts. See if I got them all. First, there's a time of Jesus rebuking an illness. That's his mother-in-law who was sick, and it immediately departs, number one. Then we saw the first time where Jesus lays hands on the multitude, the crowds that were there, and, and he drove out demons and made people well. Then we see the time that Jesus needed solitude with the Father, right? It's also the first time we saw people trying to hinder Jesus from leaving the area and going off to other towns. They were so desperate for his touch. Then this is the first time we see the relationship between Jesus and Peter turn from Peter simply being a man to his being the rock Christ's rock on whom he'll build his church. And finally, it's the first time we see his disciples being called to leave everything behind and follow him. A lot of things going on here. But what does this have to do with putting first things first? Well, let me, let me explain. For Jesus and Peter... We see there's wisdom in how they prioritize their activities. They seem to know which were the important things, the first things that have to be done. For Jesus, the important first thing was going out at daybreak to a solitary place where they could leave the crowds behind. He could leave the crowds behind for a minute and commune with the Father in solitude. Now, I believe in prayer so much that you're not going to get me to say that driving along to work or running errands and praying as you're driving is something you shouldn't be doing. And we all know that the task before us is to pray without ceasing, right? Pray without ceasing means you pray without ceasing. But there's something about getting alone intentionally, deliberately, and distinctively with the Father for prayer, just you and him in solitude. There's something we need to take note of in that because Jesus did it so, so often. Now, I realize the term solitude is new to some of us, but for others of us, it's the way of life. Because being alone and, and, and being in solitude with the Lord are two different things. Henry Nouwen is a writer, and uh, he ministered to the disabled. He says, we are responsible for our own solitude precisely because our secular milieu, the secular crowds around us, the secular group of people we live among, offer us so few spiritual disciplines we have to develop our own. And one of the disciplines that we need to develop is periodically and deliberately being alone in solitude with the Lord. Jesus is our example, and he periodically leaves the throngs to go off and be with the Father. He goes off to refresh and to regroup, to get reconnected with the Father. He goes off to get human, to gain human stamina needed to continue at the pace he's been ministering at. You know, he, he's ministering on this earth for three years only three years. And so he's doing it with full days, lots of people, lots of places, and that's going to wear you out after a while. Even at 30 years old, it's going to wear you out.
So our number one example this morning of putting first things first is to follow Jesus' example and be engaged in the discipline of being in solitude alone with the Father. It doesn't have to be all the time, but as often as we can. That's number one. We're only going to get two. You know what that tells you. We're starting to land the plane, as my wife would tell me. When are you going to land that plane? Secondly, we need to look again at Peter's response to Jesus' call to ministry because Peter is so much like us. Do you agree? So much like we are. He no doubt was filled with wonderment when Jesus ministered to his mother-in-law and then uh, when he, the nets were let out and there's all that fish. And then he, he, there's this leave everything behind and follow Jesus kind of faith, which was very, very dramatic. Peter, James, and John had little to go on, but they were quick to leave all that they had and follow Jesus. And isn't this what Jesus calls us all to do? We see in Luke 18, the story of the rich ruler. He comes to Jesus and he says, how do I get eternal life? By raise of hand. How many in this room expect or desire eternal life with Jesus? And that's a given, right? Eternal life is a given. Yeah. Y'all raise your hand, right? Sure. Absolutely. So this, this rich young ruler wants eternal life, and Jesus says, you got to know the commandments. He says, I got the commandments down. I know them. He says, then sell everything you have and follow me. And he went away sad because he couldn't do that. He couldn't do that. He wasn't ready to commit all that he had to Jesus and follow him, so the kingdom did not come to him. Matthew 19, 29 says, And everyone who has left houses and brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. We don't want to hear that. We like the eternal life. But we don't like to hear, leave the mothers and fathers and kids and, and, and the fields. And, 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 you know, you know, we don't like the rest of that, that list there. We don't like it. But the kingdom of God requires us to be sold out to Jesus, not just being a part-timer. Luke 9, 23 tells us, if anyone would come after me, he must deny, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And this is the key to leaving everything behind and, follow us Jesus, and following Jesus. We deny ourselves, we take up our cross, his cross, daily. And gratefully, this doesn't mean the same thing for every person because we're not all made the same and we don't all have the same spiritual gifts. Now, I'm going to tell you the key to this right now. Does this mean we all need to be full-time Christian workers? Not in a vocational sense, but yes, in a ministry sense. We're all ministers of the gospel. Yeah? We are. Just like Peter, who had only a little fish, he still let down the nets after he fished and cost nothing all night. Anybody fished all night and got nothing? Any, you know, I don't know about, I can't remember now, it's been so long since I've spent a night on the Huntington Beach Pier and <laughs> trying to catch fish. But I don't think I caught anything all night long. Man, you're worn to a frazzle. You don't want to see another fish. 
<laughs> you don't want to go near it. Um, but obedience to the call of Jesus comes first, no matter how many things we have just completed or are about to be completed in Jesus' name. Obedience comes first. Because you know, you never know when Jesus is going to call you to do a special task. I might have told you this story one time, I'm sorry. But I know completely that 100% of you haven't heard it. I used to work for, for World Vision and um, in Monrovia, and so I would drive from uh, that, in those days we lived in Santa Ana, so we drive from Santa Ana, North Santa Ana, so we drive from Santa Ana to Monrovia, and our daughter Erin was in the car with us, and because she was doing some data entry there, and um, she was uh, in our high school, probably a senior, and we're driving, and you know how it is when you see an accident, but you don't see an accident. All you see is the dust flying up in front of you, and you know there's been an accident. So there's this, something happened four or five cars in front of us. And so I pulled over to the curb, but I kept driving a little bit, and then I pulled over to the, the side, and then I stopped when I got to it, and I went over there, and um, it's an 18-wheeler and a guy on a motorcycle. Now, I don't know anything about motorcycles, especially helmets, and this was an old helmet. And, and the guy was on his back, and he was gurgling, and he was breathing his last breath because he was choking, he was drowning. And then you have the proverbial guy, you know who I'm talking about. Nobody touch him, everybody leave him alone. And I said, he's gonna drown. So, and then I knelt down, and I reached underneath. It wasn't, the, it wasn't one of these pull things. It was an old one. Uh, and, and so I had to really work at it. And then finally I got, got it done. And I took off his helmet. And I, and, and I put it down. And I leaned him over. I leaned him over like this. And his head is down now. His head is down like this. And he's, he's still bleeding. But he's, he took a breath. And I was patting him on the breath. And then quietly... I was praying, I started praying for him. And um, pretty soon the paramedics were there and I just got up and walked through the crowd and went over here and uh, went to work and, you know, <laughs> I had blood all over my hands. I had a rag in the car, so I got most of it off, but I still had blood all over. Go to, go to work. Worked the day, but I called and found out it was a little hospital called Santa Teresita, Santa Teresita up in Glendora is where he was at. And so at the end of, after work, I went over there and to see how he was doing. And um, uh, there's 40 people in this room waiting, and so I'm just kind of looking here, and in comes the doctor, and the, they, they hadn't heard a thing about it. They didn't know what was going on all day long. They had not, what was going on with their loved one? So he says that, uh, that he br has a broken collarbone, and that he had a couple of vessels, that's where all the blood came from, and everything, but he's going to be fine, and, and, and this and that. And so when he left, I went up to the mother. You can always see the mother. You, know, you always know who the mother is. So I went up to the mother, and I, and I uh, asked her if she knew any more than that, and she said no, and I told her the story that I just told you a minute ago. And, 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 and the rest of the family was starting to listen in, and they're all, you gotta be kidding. No, and so I said, okay, just wanted you to know, and I left, no big deal. He was run over on his head, and his helmet saved him. It was cracked on an 18-wheeler. Now, what am I, why did I say that to you? Because I'd just gotten done. Because you never know when Jesus is going to call you to a specific task. And that goes for 
guys running over, in the, their head run over by an 18-wheeler. You never know. So you're always ready. You're always ready. But there's a rub that comes in because at this point because we all have other things in our lives to do. So how do we put first things first? We've always got a million things to do. I had to be at work. If I had an important meeting that morning, would I have let the meeting go and, and, and gone out there? I don't know. We've, got, we've all got so much to do. How do we put first things first? I don't know, especially if our personalities or our makeup are not used to serving the Lord so completely. So if you're not, serving, if you're not used to serving the Lord so completely, then go and serve the Lord more completely. Seems to me, I'm getting ready to tell you again what I told you before, that Jesus said this. The Bible tells us when there's two, Jesus went into a, to a place where there was a, a man and two sisters, and, you know, Mary and Martha, you all know the story about Mary and Martha. Mary's the one that sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to how he taught the disciples. She wanted to know how Jesus taught the disciples. Martha's the one that's preparing lunch. Lunch is good. I know where some of you are going to make a beeline as soon as we're done here in about seven minutes and 22 seconds. I know where you're going. You're going to lunch. But, whoops, oh boy. So, so, she goes to Jesus and says, Lord, don't you care that my sister left me to do all the work? Hey! <laughs> you know, hey! You know? <laughs> Tell her to help me! What's Jesus say? Martha, Martha, you're troubled. You're worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed. Mary has chosen the the best part. It's what we talked about earlier. That's where that guy got that saying from Jesus. The best part. The good takes away from the best. It was good that she was cooking and helping in the kitchen. It was good. They're all going to need something to eat. But not the best. We can all say, Lord, but look what I have to do. My list is long. Especially if you're a solo pastor in a church and everything is up to you before church starts. And holes in roofs and drains that haven't worked outside after a rainstorm and all that other stuff, you're busy getting it fixed while before as other people are walking in. Look what I got to do. My list is long. I understand the work of the church, but there's a time to sit at the Lord's feet and enjoy him and his presence. My guess is that's true of most of us. The key to keeping first things first, I'm going to give it to you right now. Number one, I believe the Lord wants us to see that it is being alone with the Lord in solitude and communing with him. And while you're never supposed to say never, I'm going to say never. You never can go wrong with that. Because as it says in James 4.8, I'm going to say the first part of the verse, you're going to say the second. James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Don't draw near to God and you're on your own. <laughs> Secondly, while third, 
while there are things that we don't understand completely happening around us, and yet we may, know, we may reflect that the Lord is somehow in it, we're going to say, nevertheless, at your word, Lord, I will do it. I don't understand what you're doing. Haven't got it down. But I know you want me to do it because Romans 6.16 says, obedience leads to righteousness. Does everybody want righteousness in their life? Right? I see, I don't see as big of the shaking of the heads as I've seen this morning. So you're either ready to walk out of here or, or you're not agreeing with me. So, does everybody want righteousness in their lives? Yes. You gotta go through what tunnel? Obedience. Obedience, uh-oh, is right. You gotta go through obedience. If you're not quite sure of the why, but if you're reasonably sure of the who, go with the who. Right? Go with Jesus. That's who you go with. So this week, I'm going to ask you to try something a little different just to see if it catches on. What if we say that this coming week, we're all going to spend 30 minutes in solitude with the Lord a couple of times if we can. 30 minutes in solitude. You may read a scripture or two, but this isn't a Bible study. You do that elsewhere. Okay? This is spending time with the Lord in solitude. So... Um, tell him your dreams and ask him how they might fit in with his will for your life. Sit in his presence. And if you don't hear anything, just keep sitting in his presence. You will. Talk about the problems you're facing with or how you might serve him better or with more focus. And be sure and tell him that you love him and you're grateful for his promises in your life. What do you think? Can we do at least 30 minutes this week in solitude, by yourself, alone with the Lord, and if you go 30 minutes without hearing a sound and you don't say nothing and God isn't saying anything, that's okay. Because you're going to grow. You're going to grow and the Lord is going to speak to you with that still small voice. Secondly, this is the second thing we're going to do. Got two things we're going to do this week. We're going to watch for opportunities where we might say, you know, I'm not sure, again, I'm not sure I understand what's going on, but I sense the Lord is in it, so I will go along and be his person on the scene. His person on the scene. I want to get my, Lord, I want to get out of my life and get involved in the life of someone who needs you. You want to know, and you want to know a secret? I'm going to tell you how you can find someone who needs you. They're usually grumpy. Really, and they're complainers. They need someone to love them. They need someone to take them and buy them a cup of coffee and sit down and, and, and let them know that there's a friend around. They need to see Jesus through your eyes. Yeah? Okay. 
Let me just elaborate so we know what we're doing here. I've got five lines, and then it's, it's time for the prayer. So I'm just letting you know. Both of these activities can encourage us to draw closer and develop a deeper relationship to the Lord. Yeah? So my guess is that there's, these are a couple of things we want to give priority next week as we seek to take what we've heard from today and say, Lord, use me in these areas. In solitude with you, O oh Lord. And being the person on the scene that you want me to be on the scene. Do we think we can do that? What do you think? How, uh, just how many think that there's a good chance that you can accomplish both of those this week? Okay.